chapter 2, that would be great. It's very easy to open a Bible and skip to the bits that are our our sort of favourite parts, skip to bits that we find encouraging. Sometimes it's really good to just work through a book and allow uh, the book itself to really speak to us and to really challenge us. And this can be quite a discipline, especially in a book like the book of James that contains so many different challenges. But before we start at the beginning of, uh, of chapter 2, I just want to back up to the end of James chapter 1, to the verses that we were left with when we were looking at that. And so from verse 26 in James 1, this is like the introduction to the passage that we're going to read this morning. So James 1 from 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's an early warning sign here about the power of our words and our tongues and and that was explained really well uh, previously in the series. And then we see this beautiful picture of what true faith being worked out looks like looking after orphans and widows and not allowing ourselves to be polluted by the world. This is the backdrop of our passage this morning. Now, orphans and widows isn't an exhaustive list of people that we're to look out for. But in that culture, it was a real example of people who had uh, very little rights of their own, very little voice of their own, very little future, unless somebody else took responsibility for them. We outwork our religion when we stick up for people who are poor or marginalized in the society in which we live. And these verses have a particular poignancy for me and my family, and I know other families here, because um, I now have a sister, Sarah, who came to live with our family on the basis of the fact that these verses are in our Bible. It also says, don't be polluted, don't take on the values and the attitudes and the actions of society around us. So true faith being outworked seems to have a real sense of social justice on the one hand, and it also has a real moral conscience on the other. And I think this helps us when we look at politics and when we consider how we as Christians might respond. True faith has a moral conscience and a sense of social justice. So when we're looking at political parties or candidates or decisions, we've always got both those hats on. What is their sense of moral conscience and what is their sense of social justice? And now we come to James chapter 2 as uh, he devotes a whole uh, section to his main point this morning. In a nutshell, don't show favoritism. That is what he's saying. We'll start in uh, chapter 2. We'll read verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. The amount of time he then goes on to really expand this point shows that it's a very real subject for them. But I wanted to start here because the starting point is very clear. It's not in a rule. It's not in a regulation. The starting point is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious 
Lord Jesus. There's an emphasis here on the word glorious. Why has he picked that word? There are thousands of amazing words that we could use to describe how wonderful our Lord Jesus is. Why does he pick the word glorious? Well, I think it's probably because if we're showing favoritism towards people, often there's a kind of like craving for a stature or a status that they have inside us. We're looking for a little bit of reflected glory from our friendship or our connection with that person, a little bit of approval that comes from being friends with somebody important. Whereas uh, James is starting this, we're saying, hold on a minute, let's not look at the other people. The glory that we live in the reflection of is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not look at the people, look at the Lord Jesus. And that affects whether we show favoritism. And by favoritism, a, a kind of a working definition we'll use this morning is treating someone or having an attitude towards someone based on something that shouldn't be the basis of how we treat or have an attitude towards them. Taking an external thing, making a judgment, and uh, showing either a discrimination or a favoritism based on something external. This goes against the very heart of God himself. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, no favoritism, and accepts no bribes. God is completely and totally fair. Here in our text, we see that the basis of how people are being treated differently is on the basis of riches and poverty. So we'll have the verses from verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or oh, you sit on the floor by our feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is almost like a caricature of a scenario, an exaggeration as two strangers appear in the church meeting. The one with some wealth, the one who looks good, uh, gets ushered to the front and people are talking to them and welcoming them. And the person who looks insignificant gets a sort of second class treatment. The gold ring is quite important because uh, that shows a level of authority. That shows that this person is very likely to be an upper-class Roman citizen, which for the Jewish believers would be quite interesting. Now, just back up a little bit. We have been called to show respect and to honour people in authority. So I'd like to think that if Her Majesty the Queen herself decided next Sunday morning to pop down to Barnabas Community Church, she would be given a warm welcome and a place of honour in our church, just as would happen if someone who's currently living uh, without a, a fixed address on the streets of Shrewsbury comes to our meeting. They too come with a place of honour and have a seat. But it is okay to welcome and to show honor to people in authority. It's not, it's not saying don't do that. It's talking about favoritism. It's talking about leaving other people out. It's saying don't get caught in the trap of having like an elite of more important people in your church 
based on the values of society around us. Now, in our society in the UK at the moment, I think we have all kinds of ways that favoritism and, uh, and prejudice is outworked. Some of it is conscious and some of it is subconscious. People's financial position or their race or their age or their gender or their educational background, whether someone is seen in society as being cool or not, whether they're being seen as fitting in or not, whether they say Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury, all kinds of ways that we might distinguish between different people. I was very tempted to say whether people say Shrewsbury or whether they say it wrong, but then I realized that uh, that, would, um, that would show something in my own heart. Um, if we look at the press, if we uh, consider our thoughts, how do we feel in this country if we consider uh, illegal immigrants, people on benefits, travelers and gypsies? How do we feel about some of the marginalized groups in our society? And this text can be applied so much wider than material wealth. In Romans 2, Paul uh, applies exactly the same principle. God has no favorites. And he applies that to a situation with the Jews and the Greeks to say God has no favorites on racial grounds. So if he's got no favorites, he's got no favorites on race, he's got no favorites on uh, someone's financial position, we can apply this principle right the way across the way that we do life. And I don't know about you, but I find verse 4 there really tough. If we make a surface-level judgment against somebody, that's really, really bad news. Judges with evil thoughts. That's quite strong language, isn't it? There's a real rebuke in there. I remember many years ago now, I was mugged when I was a student in Birmingham, and I was threatened with a knife uh, by a group of lads. And, uh, and I remember for many years afterwards, I had to fight not to judge uh, groups of lads who looked very similar uh, in their ethnic and social background to what had happened to me. Because of a previous traumatic experience that I'd had, my experience was real, my fear was real, but it had actually led me to a place of being afraid of anyone who matched an external description. Does that make sense to you? I was the victim, but even so, I was the one who'd become guilty of allowing a prejudice to be birthed in me to the point that I would be afraid of a complete stranger based purely on how they looked. Now, I thought myself a reasonably sort of... um, on the straight and narrow Christian person. I didn't really feel like I had prejudice in me. And then I did a Steps to Freedom in Christ appointment, and we were praying through different areas of prejudice. And I prayed, God, would you please show me? And kind of expecting a bit of radio silence. And it was just like he went, what about the way you feel when you see groups of lads like that? So that was something that I had to repent of and turn away from and be free from. I wonder if any of you can uh, identify with that experience. And is there stuff that God still wants to work in us to give us greater freedom from experiences that we've had? It seems that this sort of judging people is especially bad news if we do that to people who are poor. 
And this is because God has made a decision to elevate people who are poor in the eyes of the world around them into his kingdom by saving them. Verse 5 and onwards. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? We've sung the song this morning, the humble poor believe. In a world that bases value on people, on their achievements, on their responsibility, on their authority, on their success, and many of those things are good, but basing their achievement only on these things God reaches down and says, I love you. I love you because I love you because I love you. He seems to reach down and speak into people's life and call people to himself without any regard for who they are and how they got where they are. And it's when God raises up people in society that others have rejected. It somehow just shows the grace of God on display for all to see. It just becomes so clear that he's loved them because he loves them because he loves them. People without a great earthly inheritance stand as equals inheriting the kingdom of God. And if all of that's true, then I think the church in this country does have a few questions to consider about how we can reach out to different sections of society. There's a danger that the way church exists and the way church functions can really only sort of have specific classes and maybe very middle class as a way of doing life. If we want to be open-hearted to people from different uh, social groups, we need to understand and engage with people uh, and understand some of their needs to be open-hearted to them. Martin works in the charity Jubilee Plus, and he works very closely with a lady called Natalie, who I've heard speak on this subject, who came from... um, lived with her mum in a flat in an estate uh, down south where she lives. And uh, she tells the story of coming to faith from a, a family that weren't believers from that social background and being part of the church. And uh, one of her worst nightmares as a 15, 16-year-old girl was being invited round to her friend's house for dinner because her and her mum just used to plate up their food on trays and sit in front of the TV to eat together. And then she went round to people's houses and these big dishes were brought out and placed in the centre of the table and the person would say, help yourself. As a 15-year-old, that was a nightmare for her because she didn't know what the food was and she didn't know how much she was meant to take. So she'd say, oh no, you go first in the hope that someone else would take a portion and then she would at least know what the done thing was. But because they were polite, they would say, oh no, you're the guest, you go first. And now she looks back almost amusingly because she would go home relatively hungry with people talking to her about her tiny appetite because she never knew how much food she was supposed to take when she went first. I just throw that up in the air because when I heard her share that story, I thought what kind of parts of the way that I do life would make it difficult for other people to come near? How can I have a greater sense of uh, empathy and inclusion? 
I do wonder if it, if it can work the other way sometimes, though. And the, as Christians, we can be so desperate to kind of help people in poverty or difficulty, we almost ignore people who seem to have everything together. There can be a bit of almost like an inverse snobbery. I remember a lady visiting the church and saying to me quite seriously at the end of a meeting that she could never be part of a church like this because her place as a Christian was with alcoholics, addicts, and people whose lives were in a real mess. And I thought to myself at the time, well, I think you've really missed the point of this church then because all those people are in membership in our church It's just that that's their old life that they've been redeemed from. And what you see now on the surface level is the new construct of their life following Jesus, day by day redeemed. But it's not like people are excluded on that basis within the life of our church. It's fascinating what Christians will make their issue that is the issue. I vividly remember a a conversation Martin had um, when... uh, there was a a very uh, influential uh, family who were looking to join the church at one stage many years ago, but the guy came to Martin and basically said, well, we'd really like to join your church, but we can't join your church uh, as long as you have people who have tattoos involved in public ministry because we don't think that's right. And, uh, And Martin said, well, then this is not the church for you because... Uh, anyone who is redeemed and a follower of Jesus and, and, and living a life of discipleship to him is welcome to come and to be active in the life of the church. I thought that was fascinating to pick one thing like that and to make it the thing. From verse 6, but you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? It's at this point that we realize that the example given is actually based in a level of reality. You have dishonored the poor, and that seems to really rile James. Because even on a human level, they are preferring people who aren't actually like friends to them. It's most likely that with the believers having been scattered with persecution, uh, they've arrived in the new places uh, without possessions, without land of their own. So the landowners and the business owners would be in a position to exploit the believers the early Christians that were a persecuted minority themselves. And then as they sort of worked hard and uh, they built their lives, there would be a sense by which they they, uh, could then start earning money and get their own businesses started. And then the church group started. And then suddenly one of these sort of landowners, one of these wealthy people who exploited them when they first arrived, comes into the church meeting and out comes the red carpet. And James says, even on a human level, that makes no sense. And then from verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. Here we see this wonderful argument uh, being constructed against favoritism. Essentially, Christians are judged against a law that at the very heart of it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we can't be loving our neighbor as ourselves if we're looking down on them, if we're treating them poorly, if we're judging them. This royal law of God, this will of God that has stretched through the ages has right in its core a call on people who say they belong to God to love their neighbor. And on that basis, if we discriminate on anyone based on anything external, we've actually gone against the command of God himself. Now, between you and me, right, I know that we're not supposed to rank sins in order, yeah? I know that we're not supposed to. But I think that murder is pretty bad, right? I do. I think it's pretty bad. Don't do it. I, uh, and I, I know we're not supposed to rank sins in order, right? But I think that adultery is really bad, okay? It's, it, it's, it's a bad thing. What's fascinating about this is that the second greatest commandment we're ever given is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if we were ranking sins, if we were truly putting them in the order that reflects the heart of God, breaking that one would be pretty serious. He says, speak and act. Get your words right towards people and live it out as well. And I think in an environment like this, there wouldn't be many of us who would fall into the trap of speaking words of discrimination. But do our thoughts or perhaps our actions tell a different story? Are we showing favoritism and leaving people out, not by what we do, but by what we don't do? By the fact that we don't do anything that engages with a particular sector of society. This is a a challenge and a, a warning and an opportunity for any church community. Showing mercy is exactly what loving your neighbor looks like. If judging people is negative, then showing mercy triumphed, triumphs. God's mercy triumphed over the judgment that we deserved through the work of Jesus, through his death and resurrection. So as we show mercy to people, It's evidence of Jesus working in us and through us. It's part of our defense before God because as he sees us being merciful, he knows that we belong to him. We don't love because we're these brilliant moral people who always make the right choice about our attitudes and our thoughts towards people. We can love because we know what it's like to be loved first. We know what it's like to be loved when we were far away. We're free to love because we've been forgiven ourselves. We've been set free. So we don't have to judge other people to make ourselves feel better because we know that we're free. We've been given a freedom to love. The law brings freedom, freedom to love because we've experienced it ourselves through what God has done for us. Few practical things and then we're done. I'm very conscious of the time. If we could have the the next slide. This loving your neighbor concept, how does it outwork in the pastoral life of the church with one another? 
If we come alongside to help someone, are they a project that we want to fix? Or is it a person who we want to love? Our evangelism and our outreach, we can have all the truth, we can have all the explanation, we can have all the cultural relevance in the world, but what people really need to know most of all is does God love them? And often their key introduction to whether God loves them or not is whether we do. We can be a reflection of the love of God that is a witness to the person before they even hear a word of truth. Let's have that in mind as we approach the Alpha course and invite lots of guests to be involved. And then with our social action, we don't want to be patronizing people. We want to be expressing the love of God in clear and practical ways because those people do matter. We do care for them. We will stick up for them. I think this idea that we are allowed to have friends without showing favoritism. So it's okay that we have friendship groups within the life of our church community and in society. That's fine. The difference isn't who are we drawing to us. It's who are we pushing away. Do you see what I mean? So it's it's, it's just worth saying that. I think it's worth asking God to reveal if we do have prejudice in us. And also to almost go the extra mile to find out about people who are different from us. People who are different nationalities. People from a different social background. Don't just write people off for being partial, poor or whatever. Anything in between. Actually, let's engage with people and get to know them. Our God didn't show prejudice towards us. So we won't show prejudice towards other people. To finish, I want to read you this uh, news item which came through uh, BBC website this week. And if we just have the uh, clip up. This is the main BBC website, top 10 news item this week. How gypsies have moved from fortune-telling to fervent Christianity. This is quoting BBC website, public news this week. At a time when large numbers of people are drifting away from formal religion, one church is bucking the trend. Huge numbers of gypsies and travellers in England now say they've joined a new movement called Light and Life, which incidentally is the name of their church. Those who that join have given up drinking alcohol and fortune-telling. There's been a surge in people joining it, centred on charismatic preaching, praying in tongues and miracle healing. Brilliant. About 6,000 gypsies and travellers attended the church's UK convention. 700 caravans are parked around a blue and white big top in the middle of an agricultural showground. That sounds familiar. One of those caravans belongs to this lady, Diane, and she says, My mother used to go out telling fortunes, selling lucky charms like many gypsy women, and sometimes I'd go with her. I didn't think it was wrong. It was just another way of earning a living. Light and life, though, regards fortune-telling as sinful. It says in the Bible, have nothing to do with sorcery and witchcraft, Diane explains. Main BBC website, National News this week. Meanwhile, men are congregating in groups. Among them is Peter. He's in a wheelchair after losing the use of his legs. I see a great shift among gypsies today. We've gone from being professional liars, and I was one of them, he says bluntly. Listen to this quote. Now we don't want to live that life no more because the Holy Spirit's inside us. We want to go 100% legal. That's what happens when you're born again, he adds. 
As night falls, the worship begins in the big top. The atmosphere is electric. 3,000 people clap and a single guitar starts the service. I will leave my sin. I will follow you. The worship is led by gypsy pastors who preach passionately and call on those present to change. It's not just the gypsies that God wants to save, claims church elder Jackie Boyd. England and Britain as a nation are going against the standards and principles of God in a big way. So we hope to see a revival and our people saved, but we want everyone to be saved. And the final bit of uh, editorial comment from the BBC main website this week. So it seems that Christianity could be having a profound effect on this often marginalized community. I read that. I read that and I think that's so exciting. That's so fantastic. And then I read James 2 and I consider one question. What would happen if this week 10 caravans appeared on Abbey Fourgate car park and made a right mess of the parking for the Christmas shopping? And in the Shropshire Star and on social media, there was pictures and there was hate and there was threats. And then we found out that those people had come here because they'd been on our website and they wanted their children to come and be part of our Christmas production and our Christmas family service. How would we respond? What attitudes get raised up when something like that happens? I don't have a clear-cut answer to that question, but I know that if that ever happens, we will open James 2 together as a church and we will ask for the Holy Spirit to help us to wisely live it out today. Amen. Amen.